You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Hey, 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 welcome back to the 1208 Podcast. Today, we are going to dive into... uh, well, back into a passage we've already addressed. So we came across a guy named Melchizedek last uh, time that we were looking at the story of Abraham. And uh, maybe I should just read it to you again so we all remember where we were, because it's not a very commonly told story. So if you remember, Abraham goes to war against uh, these these kings who have gone to war with some other kings and, and won. So... Abraham goes to war against the kings who won because they captured his uh, nephew Lot. So he goes to war, he wins, and then he returns to the kings who lost, and uh, he starts to have a conversation with these kings who lost. So we read this last time, but let's read it one more time. Genesis 14, 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of Shedelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshol, and Mamre take their status. So right here, sorry, I said status, take their share. (laughs) So right here we have a a story with a guy named Melchizedek who just shows up here for a brief moment uh, and talks with Abraham. And it's kind of weird because Melchizedek seems to be worshiping God, most high, the, the one true God, even though he's outside of the line of Abraham, right? Um, which is which is interesting, uh, simply because if you remember the Tower of Babel, this is part of where we have the sons of God come in, uh, and Deuteronomy 32 says that all of the nations are turned over to other spiritual beings, um, but Abraham is going to be God's uh, particular nation, uh, the people who come out of Abraham, right? So with that being said, of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview in mind, it's just, it's very interesting that along comes Melchizedek, and he is a priest of who seems to be the one true God, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, Um, and then suddenly he's kind of working, it seems, a priest on behalf of God. So yeah, it's just kind of strange, but I guess... The thing that we're going to zoom in on right now is the fact that Melchizedek is a king and he's also a priest. 
This is what I want to focus on because it speaks into Jesus and it speaks into uh, partially your identity as well. But in order to speak into this, I'm honestly, I'm just going to read from uh, my book, The Rush and the Rest. I'm going to read to you all of chapter four from this book, which is about being a royal priesthood. We're not going to get into Melchizedek until like the end of this chapter, but we are going to come back to him. Because Melchizedek, he shows up this one time, but then he appears in the Psalms, and then suddenly uh, the people of Jesus' time are trying to discern who this prophetic figure of Melchizedek is. Some of the Jews are going to write really weird things in other Jewish sources that completely miss the point, um, but Hebrews is going to understand the identity in Jesus. So, to get to Melchizedek, we read again chapter 4 of my book, The Rush and the Rest. Here we go. In the New Testament, we have Peter talking about how we are a royal priesthood. This is an important distinguishing mark on Christians because it is a restoration in spiritual identity that has been lost over time. Now that we understand the Garden of Eden as being a sacred space for God to dwell, we can begin to see Adam as a king and priest over all humanity. This language, of course, is not related to Adam in the Bible, but he does seem to fit these roles. If he has such intimate access to the presence, then he is able to speak and work on God's behalf like a priest. Likewise, since he's charged with subduing and ruling the earth, he also acts as a king of sorts. One role becomes two. The king-slash-priest role seems to be a special position God hopes all of his leaders to partake in, and the idea really is quite beautiful. For if a king is also a priest, then he would be able to lead God's people while maintaining a special connection with God and serving in his presence. The time spent in the presence would then be a key factor influencing all the king does. But this kind of role in God's kingdom is eventually done away with in Moses' time as a concession to Moses. For he was dead set against being a public speaker. Therefore, God allowed his brother Aaron to take on the priest role and left Moses in the king-like role. And so, due to Moses' desire and not God's, the king-slash-priest role is split and will remain split for the rest of the Old Testament. For now on, the ruler of Israel will not play the part God meant him to play, or at least he won't play it with the fluidity of which he was supposed to. Aaron and the Levite clan will now serve as the priests of God, and Aaron will now play a strange mediator role between God and Moses and Israel. And this divine concession will happen again when Israel demands they have a king like all the other nations have. God knew a king wouldn't be good for Israel and even warned them so, but they remained stubborn. Therefore, God gave them what they wanted. And right from the get-go, it all fell apart. King Saul was chosen by God to be a king and did such a bad job at it that a few chapters later, God actually regretted having made him king. Following Saul is a slew of kings, some good, some bad, and some mediocre. Out of these kings, Saul's successor David will become the ideal to live up to, even despite the pretty atrocious sins he committed. But as we gaze upon his life and kingship, we can start to see why he was so important. He was a man after God's heart who would do all of God's will, a rare quality to find in many of those who became king of Israel. 
Kings and Prophets. Well, being a royal king, David also operated operated in the prophetic, as noted by the Psalms he wrote that foreshadowed Jesus. Even Jesus himself acknowledged David's ability to write things in the Spirit, Matthew 22.43. David also speaks to his prophetic gifting in his words, in his last words, saying, The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. 2 Samuel 23, 1-2 Now this may confuse us at first because we wonder how a king might also be able to operate as a prophet. The answer is in the fact that, like the prophets, sometimes the kings of Israel operated out of the endowment of the Holy Spirit, and so they, there could be overlap. As Walton notes, John Walton, that is, just uh, out of his book, The Ancient Near Eastern Background of the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament, Walton notes, Prophets and kings received overlapping manifestations of divine endowment, but for prophets, the emphasis falls on the spoken word, while for kings, the emphasis falls on actions. But apparently for David, the Spirit worked in both ways in his life, though this isn't to say that kings always operated out of the Spirit. As God points out through the lips of Hosea, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Hosea 8.4 Therefore, simply being a king clearly does not equal divine appointment and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. But outside of a few good kings, there is a pretty harsh line in Israel when it comes to roles. God's ability to relate to Israel has now been divided between 1. the royal king, and 2. the lowly prophets, and 3. the priesthood. Sometimes these roles overlap, but many times they are entirely separate. Priests and Prophets The combination of roles that overlapped more than others in the Old Testament was that of the priests and prophets. As one commentary explains, In early times, the distinction between priest and prophet does not seem to have been sharp. The Arabic kahin was both seer and priest. Samuel was both priest and prophet. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both came out of the priestly families. The connection, indeed, of priests and prophets was always close. Those prophets, whom Jeremiah denounces as false, act in concert with the temple priesthood. Pashur, who put Jeremiah in the stocks, was a prophet as well as priest. And it was the priests and prophets who arraigned Jeremiah before the princes of, for blasphemy against the temple. With that being said, we can speculate that the king-slash-priest role is also meant to have a prophetic edge to it. After all, a simple definition for prophecy is hearing the voice of God. And one would expect a priest who ministers in God's sacred space and teaches God's ways to be attentive to God. So to some extent, we'd expect we'd even expect this king-slash-priest role to be more of a king-slash-priest-slash-prophet role. And this is a role that, though done away with in Moses' time, will one day return, for eventually a prophetic word is given that implies that a king-slash-priest will one day take the throne. And it happens to be found in the same psalm that Jesus said David wrote in the Spirit. It is there that the psalmist writes, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4 
The Return of Melchizedek Psalm 110's allusion to Melchizedek is a reference back to a short story from Abraham's time. After war broke out across the land, seemingly between humans and the giant descendants of the Nephilim, uh, you can listen to uh, the episode from two weeks ago to, to learn more about that. Uh, after war broke out across the land and Abraham's nephew Lot was kidnapped, Abraham headed out with his servants to rescue him. He entered into war and won, which is where Melchizedek comes into the story. And this is what we read earlier. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. There's a lot we could say about all of this, but for now the focus is on the fact that Melchizedek was the last king-slash-priest we have in the Old Testament. Adam seemed to first serve in this kind of role, but Melchizedek is the last glimpse we get of such a figure until we get to Jesus. And that is the point of Psalm 110. Jesus will be the king-slash-priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the most recent king-slash-priest. Jesus will take on the role forever and restore the role that God always intended to exist. Jesus has become king of the world because God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11 And as for the priest side of things in Jesus' identity... Well, Psalm 110 was not the only passage after Genesis to reference Melchizedek. Hebrews, likewise, makes comment and connects Jesus straight to Melchizedek and the priesthood. Hebrews 6, 19-20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek became an important character in the Jewish literature that was written closer to Jesus' time. He became a Messiah-esque figure that the Jews began to ponder about, wondering who he was going to be based on the prophetic psalm about him. Much of their thinking becomes very flawed, but Hebrews shows us the true meaning that Melchizedek Melchizedek served in pointing to Jesus, for Jesus is the new priest for all eternity. Jesus picks up the role that Melchizedek had last, and no one will ever take it from him. The Levitical Priesthood Ends With all this in mind, we now see that God has done away with the Levitical line of the priesthood that was created by his concession to Moses. He takes the non-Levitical Jesus and makes him a king-slash-priest of the Most High God, just as he had done to Melchizedek, who was outside of the line of Abraham, and therefore disconnected from the Levites. Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, says Hebrews 7.16. And while we are not Jesus, the forever king-slash-priest, Peter still calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 
The book of Revelation agrees, saying that Jesus has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, Revelation 1.6. Therefore, nothing and no one can stand in the way of us accessing the presence of God. As one scholar notes, we occupy so high a position that no man can be higher in this life. As a priesthood, a body that is made up entirely of priests, no man stands between us and God. And as a body of royal priests, no man stands over us in our relation to God. The adjective as well as the noun reveal in a double way the exaltation of the position, sorry, the exaltation of our position and our function, the constant, direct, immediate contact with God. Our genetics no longer determine our ability to approach the Holy of Holies. We do not need to be Levites to enter the sacred space, and the author of Hebrews invites us to do so freely. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 19-22 Jesus has made a way for us. He is both the king and the high priest for all eternity, and he has invited us to join his kingdom by operating as his royal priesthood. And so when we accept salvation, we become more than we've ever been before. We are a royal priesthood that is able to access the intimate presence of God because of the king-slash-priest Jesus, the new Melchizedek. And as Jesus welcomes us into the priesthood, we are given the ability to do exactly what priesthoods do and perform in the office for mediation between the divine and human. All right, so there you go. That's a chapter out of my book, The Rush and the Rest. And the reason I read it to you today is because we just saw Melchizedek enter shortly in the Bible. And a lot of people wonder, like, why does he keep showing up? Why is he in the, why is he in the Psalms? Why is he in Hebrews? This one guy who just prayed for Abraham, what, what importance does he have? And uh, just to summarize everything we just learned, it's, it's the function that Melchizedek serves that I think makes the most sense in relation to Jesus and the Psalms. You are a king priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, that Psalm was making a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the king slash priest forever after Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the last king slash priest. And the next time that we get one, it's Jesus and he stays that priest forever. And since we are Jesus' royal priesthood, we uh, uh, walk too with authority, we become a, a priesthood of Jesus who is at the top above us. So I hope that helps you a little bit with your identity from a theological perspective, but also sees, helps you see Jesus in his identity, reigning over us and leading this, this priesthood. He is the high priest, the, the one at the top, the pope if you will. So, uh, yeah, that's today's little bit. Uh, I hope that uh, helps educate you a little bit on uh, why Melchizedek is in the Bible. But if you really want to go deep, if you want to learn a whole lot more, then you got to go check out uh, 
My favorite scholar, Michael Heiser, uh, to some extent, a lot of what I just shared really is, is taken from him. So all credit to Michael Heiser on this one, but he's got uh, um, a podcast called the Nacle, <laughs> the Nacle, the Naked Bible Podcast. Um, and if you go check that out, you can check out his episodes on Melchizedek, where not only is he going to say similar things to what I just said, but he's going to go very deep into a whole lot of other things that you may find interesting or you may not. It just depends how, how deep you want to go. I believe it's episodes 166 to 168 and then maybe 170 as well, I think is a QA, and a uh, maybe 172. But yeah, if you're itching to dive even deeper into some of the thoughts of Melchizedek and uh um, what his name means is kind of interesting as well. Well, you can go check out all of that because I just uh, touched the surface of some of the discussion that there is around Melchizedek. All right. We'll catch you next time on the Midweek Podcast or on Sunday or on the Sunday version of the 1208 Podcast. You know, you do you. <laughs>